welcome everyone. Um, I'm Incia, I'm a partner here at Andreessen Horowitz. And today is our first Clubhouse show in a series we're calling People Behind the Product. And the idea here is each week we want to focus on one company or a product category within consumer tech and go under the hood with the people that built the product, dive into stories, learnings, perspectives on the industry today and in the future. So today we're starting this off by discussing the evolution of the creator economy with a focus on the role that YouTube has been playing for the last 15 years. I will go so far as to say like it, it founded the creator economy and so we want to dive in with the folks on, in the room on what happened and what implications it has today. So in the room today we have Jamie Byrne, who is the Senior Director of Creator Partnerships at YouTube. He was an early YouTube employee pre-acquisition and we'll have some great stories to share from those early days of YouTube to where it's today. We have Shishir, who is a former VP of Product Engineering and UX at YouTube and is currently the co-founder and CEO at Coda.io. Shiva, who was a former product management director at YouTube, he went on to being a VP at Spotify for product, CPO at WeWork, and currently is VP of shops and business product management at Facebook. And also amazing, welcome Lauren. Um, Lauren is a long-standing YouTube star. She's been known for her channel, Laura DIY on YouTube. She's been posting DIY tutorials on YouTube for a long time. She's also the executive producer of HBO Max show called Craftopia. There's lots and lots of fans um, Laura has here. And then we have two, uh, two general partners from Andreessen Horowitz who focus on consumer investing, Andrew Chen and Connie. So welcome everyone. Um, before we kick off, two uh, pieces of housekeeping. One, this conversation is being recorded. And if you have any questions or ideas for future topics, hit us up on Twitter. So let's go. I want to start this by uh, taking a little step back in time and go back to the time when YouTube was founded. How were consumers using the internet? So maybe a question for uh, the group here. Just take us back in time on what was happening on the internet. How were consumers using the internet circa 2006 when YouTube came about? Yeah, so I mean, I can jump in uh, to start. So I think, you know, back in like 2005 and 2006, if you'll remember, if you wanted to watch a video online, you had to download a plugin and there was no consistency, you know, across the internet from site to site. So the, the the process of consuming video was super, super challenging, right? And then, you know, YouTube came along, allowed anyone who was kind of creating video to upload, you know, any kind of source file would basically encode it and then allow anyone to view it through, you know, through a flash player, right? So, you know, basically YouTube kind of completely revolutionized the ability to kind of not only share but you know, consume video on the on the internet in that in that time period. Yeah, and JP, yeah. I was going to add if, if if everyone remembers, is it, it was it was crazy time because it was basically like a lot of the videos that you'd find would be in like folders, like you'd navigate like the Apache web server folders, 
and you'd have to download like a whole QuickTime video and then you just like watch it there, which is like insane. That's like blast from the past, you know, but that, but that was, that was, you know, pre YouTube, uh, you know, video. Yeah. And I was just going to add like, you know, a big thing people were looking for was ubiquitous forms of self-expression. And that basically came in the form of, you know, musicians with music videos um, on MySpace, more or less, as well as memes, right. That people were creating. And uh, I think what was really interesting is the birth of YouTube kind of coincided with this rise of this meme economy and eventually monetizing those memes. But it's really exciting to see how fast they spread. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think the other, the other context of that time is, I mean, I get, I, I remember well, the uh, first public talk I gave about YouTube was in um, January, 2009. And uh, I was in New York to this, this uh, group of industry executives. Um, and we used this line that we ended up using for many years after that we said online video is going to do to cable what cable did to broadcast. And we're going to go from three channels to 300 channels to 3 million channels. Um, nowadays, when I make that statement, it seems really obvious. At that time, I almost got laughed out of the room. It was the, I got off the stage and people had all these questions for me because at the time, the comps for YouTube were MySpace, were Flickr, were all these products that, that felt very different. And comparing YouTube to television just seemed crazy to people. Um, so I think it took us like a decade to, to really live up to that online video will do to cable, what cable did to broadcast uh, viewpoint. But just very different environment. Yeah, and I think also, um, I think we forget at that time, the iPhone had just launched. Um, most of YouTube watch was happening on the desktop. Mobile, mobile was like less than 1% for a long time. So different times then. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, one thing I was going to add is, you know, one of the things that I think is so interesting is that if you, you know, I remember uh, getting introduced to YouTube in 2006. I was actually at Yahoo. I was working on Flickr, trying to figure out how you monetize UGC. YouTube launches, uh, you know, I get introduced to it in January of 2006. And what I immediately recognized was that there was this community of creators on the platform that were not only interacting with their fans through things like comments and video responses, but they were interacting with one another through challenges. They were collaborating with one another. And you know what, what I hope you know you kind of recognize when I say that is all of those things that I just said are still true about the platform today. And I think that's one of the reasons I believe that you know YouTube has had such enduring success over these past 15 years, that the core principles of you know creator the community, you know, we're there in the beginning and we've been able to kind of keep them consistent, you know, to, you know, all the way to today. Yeah. And then I think fast forward, Google acquires YouTube. Um, maybe talk a little bit about Jamie, you have this perspective, what happened pre and post acquisition, like what impact does it have on the team? Yeah. So, I mean, that was obviously a really kind of, you know, exciting time. I think there was, you know, there's a lot happening in the space around then, you know, there were kind of like some, you know, we're starting to get some threats of lawsuits and, and things of that nature, you know, back in that time period. But it was a huge validation of, you know, kind of as Shashir mentioned, you know, back in that 2006 time period, you know, you know, we weren't really being taken super seriously because, we, you know, it was called UGC back then, right? And that was like a pejorative. You know, today we talk about the creator economy. It's a totally different thing. So it was huge validation for, you know, YouTube as a product and as a company and for everyone, you know, that was kind of like building it. 
um, that you know Google kind of recognized the value. And you know, of course, today you hear people talk about YouTube as you know potentially being one of the best acquisitions by any company of of all time. So you know, kind of really you know validating. I mean, it's worth worth mentioning, Jamie, that the when uh, Jamie was there pre-acquisition, um, Shiv and I both showed up after the uh, when I showed up. Um, YouTube was uh, it had gone from being uh, potentially one of these really industry changing acquisitions and so on. When I joined, it was seen as Google's big mistake. Um, and I got all sorts of uh, heat from team members and parents and so on. Why would you join YouTube? It seems like it's not going to work. Um, I, I remember well my my first meeting with um, the, the Google CFO at the time, Patrick Bichette, um, he we had this uh, this meeting with him to just review YouTube progress and um, my first couple of weeks of joining. And he had these three charts in front of him. And the, the first chart showed um, how much money we were losing. And it was, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, which I guess these days isn't that big a deal, but in those days didn't seem didn't seem like a good thing. And the second one showed um, how much we lost per view, which was also substantial. Uh, and the third one showed what views were doing. And views were like off the charts. And they were the the uh, the the slope of how fast we were growing was incredible. But it was seen as a not obvious um, uh, viable business. And so the you know most people when I was joining said, "How could you join this thing that that seems like it might not work?" Um, full of lawsuits and so on. But I think the turnaround over the past decade is uh, I tell people that now, um, and people can't remember a time. Um, Patrick's question uh, to the group was. Who else wanted to buy the company? Can we sell it to them? Uh, so the, you know, you go back and, and and think about that now. It seems seems kind of crazy, um, but it wasn't always it wasn't always uh, uh, you know rainbows and flowers. Yeah, Shashir, I was just going to ask: is is there was no was there any doubt at the time that the that the engagement would you know wouldn't just keep going? It was most mostly like a business model critique, like this thing just wildly unprofitable. I mean, I, I think there was, there was definitely a question about the viability of the platform from a business model perspective, but there was all sorts of doubts. I mean, there was uh, there was all sorts of lawsuits. I think the the world hadn't really tested the DMCA the way that YouTube ended up testing it, um, and it was not clear whether we would win or lose those lawsuits. We ended up winning them by a long shot. And if it, fun topic to talk about is what happened to Viacom in that process. Um, the the content itself. Remember, at the time, it was. Um, grainy videos. Uh, we, we didn't have high definition. It was a lot of it was things that people didn't quite understand yet, and they viewed it as being, you know, I go back to that statement: online video due to cable, what cable did to broadcast. People would look at me funny because, like, it's dogs on skateboards. I don't understand how that could be the same. And they just completely underestimated human creativity, uh, which nowadays we kind of, you know, kind of take for granted. Um, I, I would say there was, there was probably good enthusiasm that people will keep watching YouTube. Um, but I think the common wisdom was that it would fall under its own weight. And so the group of us that were there in that period, uh, I think people use the analogy of pirates and Navy a lot, like that group of people, you know, we had a target on our backs every day, uh, that this thing might not actually work. Yeah. I remember reading about, um, all kinds of lawsuits around copyright infringement or needing the content verification programs. And I think back then, a lot of content creators like the the MBCs of the world, um, they might have not seen this as a marketing distribution vehicle and instead saw this as something infringing on copyright. You know who did is the, the I don't know if people know the story of how that lawsuit went. So the, maybe just a little background for the people in the room. 
um, there was a, the, there's a billion dollar lawsuit from Viacom because um, they they uh, claimed that YouTube was profiting off of off of their copyrighted work. Um, it, that's what led to us building Content ID. So when you upload a video to YouTube, it gets fingerprinted and checked against every um, piece of content that's ever been created on TV, on movies, and the music industry, and 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 nowadays also on YouTube, which is kind of fun. The um, and the uh, uh, so we were building that while fighting this lawsuit with Viacom. Uh, and the main the main law that defends YouTube is something called the DMCA, the D Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Um, and we ended up winning the lawsuit in summary judgment. It didn't even it didn't even go to trial. And the, the the judge uh, threw the whole thing out. And the the main uh, fact that caused that to happen was it turned out that the videos that Viacom was complaining about. A large section of them were being uploaded by the Viacom marketing team, um, and so they, their view was that we should keep it on wow. the platform. <laughs> and we were able to turn around and prove that actually, you were, they, their marketing team understood that it was great marketing, but their lawyers didn't. Uh, and so, so that was, uh, I think, kind of a turning point. If that hadn't turned that way, I think the whole internet would not only YouTube would have evolved differently, but the whole internet might have evolved very differently if YouTube had been forced to, yeah, uh, to to moderate that. I think I think that kind of brings a good point of um, what was happening on YouTube at the time and what type of content was showing up. I feel like there was this hyper growth period, the 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 breadth of content that was coming onto the platform. The team is trying to like kind of build product to harness it all, and you know it's almost like a cultural force that's happening somewhere like 2008 to 2011 while this Viacom lawsuits happening, where we're all trying to figure out. The viability of the product. I think take take us back in time on like it almost seems like that was like the birth of the creator ecosystem as all these different voices and content pieces were coming out of the platform. How were we looking at the um, creator economy at that time and what were like some key moments that were starting to form um, the product vision around the breadth of this content? Yeah I can start. I think one thing that was really important was that you saw a rise of creators on YouTube, and this might connect to the earlier point of why people demean the platform, but the rise of creators with the highest monetization potential actually were those that were most underserved by traditional channels. So if you look at the Asian community of the rise of Michelle Phan, Ryan Higa, Black community, you know, DeStorm, King Bach, you know, LGBTQ, you had Tyler Oakley. These were folks who, you know, because of the systems that existed out there, weren't invited to many of the mainstream media plays. And I think what became really interesting was to step back and make sure that ranking discovery rewarded these people based on authentic engagement and uh, monetization soon followed. Yep. And I think, you know, kind of some formative, um, you know, events in that kind of time period were, you know, the introduction of the YouTube partner program. So, you know, we had started sharing some revenue with creators in 2006, just as an experiment. 2007, you know, we launched like the first version of the YouTube partner program, which obviously today has grown to support, you know, millions of creators worldwide. And then, and, you know, maybe this is something that Shashir could also talk about, but the, um, the introduction of TrueView, you know, which Shashir led really kind of exploded uh, the monetization potential on YouTube. And I think that's when you really started to see the creator economy start to take off because creators were starting to earn, you know, significant amounts of revenue uh, through the platform. Yeah, I, mean, so I think that I mean, both points are really interesting. The underserved by traditional uh, forms of media is, I think, 
a really um, astute observation. Um, someone pointed out to me at one point that the the two biggest categories on YouTube in those early days were, were music and gaming, both of which were categories that did not do that well on television. Uh, MTV and uh, what's a, what's the gaming channel G4? Um, not neither of them really uh, really lasted. Um, and so there was you know there was many different ways that these niches uh, started forming and the. The YouTube team all really appreciate it. I mean, I think someone mentioned earlier the word UGC that the team hated that word, I and mean, it was a a label that got applied to YouTube all the time. I don't think we hear it that much anymore, um, but that's how people people demean the content, and we viewed it as the flourishing of all these niches. The partner program, I mean, it was a really hard decision to open it up. So when we, I remember well, the, like when I joined, we you had to go through this application process. Um, you mostly had to be invited by someone at YouTube to do it. And we had a lot of debate about opening it up. And, you know, there was philosophical debate on whether it was a good idea to share revenue and what's it going to do or profit margins. There was a bunch of legal and policy debate, what's going to happen when people do things that they shouldn't be doing um, or that we don't think they should be doing. Um, for me, the formative one in that was um, Sal Khan. Uh, and Sal was... I don't know if people are familiar with Khan Academy, but uh, Sal is an old friend of mine from from college as well. And as he was getting, he was a, at the time a hedge fund guy, and he was he was posting these videos on YouTube on how to how to solve algebra problems. He was trying to tutor his niece in in Louisiana. Um, and actually, back to Andrew's point, his alternative at that point was send literally record video files and send them by email. And it was too big for the Gmail attachments. And so that's why he was putting them on YouTube. That's awesome. Uh, so I was talking to him and we ended up calling him up and saying, hey, you're getting, even in the early days, he was getting more viewership than like Stanford and MIT combined. Um, and so we added him to the partner program and he had to go through this whole process in order to do it. Um, and then he was chatting with me at one point and he said, um, this is kind of fun dinner had with his, his wife, my wife, and um, we've all known each other since, since college. And, uh, and he looked at me and said, you know, do you think I can, um, quit my job, my hedge fund and do this full time? Cause you know, the checks are getting bigger and bigger and the, it's about to cover my rent. Maybe it'll cover my, uh, my salary someday. Do you think I should do that? And we ended up having this long conversation about, about the, you know, online video we'll do to cable, cable to broadcast and, and what became our sort of main talking points. And he quit and he, and he did this. And he started this um, Khan Academy, which I think at this point is the biggest educational institution on the planet. Um, and it and it started with very small checks. And so this, for me, that was like light bulb went off on even what was seemed like small checks to us would totally transform this economy um, and led to us opening up the partner program substantially and eventually making it uh, something that anybody could sort of immediately jump into. And I mean, I would see these amazing stories. Um, another one, one of my favorite ones was I think it was like the second or third VidCon. I sat down in the audience next to um, next to this elderly woman and um, she was uh, actually giving out cookies at VidCon, which I, I was kind of, it, I wasn't sure whether to accept cookies from a, from a stranger. Uh, but the, uh, she, um, she looks at me and she says, oh, I'm so excited to be here. And my son's been helping with my channel and I'm getting my first checks in. And I said, oh, great. How's it going? And she said, oh, it's amazing. I just crossed 100 subscribers. And she was so excited about 100 subscribers and a check that was probably, you know, it was probably 50 bucks that was coming into her uh, into her account. But it completely changed how people thought about the platform. 
Um, and I think probably the most important decision we made in those early days was opening up the partner program. Yeah, that's all. Well, and, and, and I know we're, it's, this is a nice segue into some of the creator dynamics. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'd love to hear from Lauren on this as well, but, um, but, but I remember I had an interesting conversation with the, with the Twitch guys and they said much the same thing. They were saying, you know, cause if, if you guys all remember, there used to be, um, they originally started out of a company called Justin TV where Justin Khan, who's, you know, a friend for, um, many of us, uh, was wearing a camera and like running around and streaming it online. And, uh, and I was asking him and Emmett, um, and Kevin and some of the guys that started Twitch, like what was the change that made Twitch work where Justin TV didn't. And, uh, you know, ga games focusing on a vertical like games, that's sort of the obvious answer. But the less obvious answer that Emmett talked a lot about was, um, you know, number one, that even getting people like 50 bucks, you know, a month or a hundred bucks a month is like, you know, it really is like a magic moment for people to be like, oh my God, I can, <laughs> I can, I can make money at all. That's like amazing. Um, and, and really thinking about it that way. And then, and then second that, um, you know, once, once you get to a certain scale and people are able to go full time, then it really unlocks people's, um, you know, creativity. But yeah, I wanted, Lauren, I wanted to ask you kind of how, when you first found YouTube, what your motivation was and how that um, changed over time. So I joined, I think in 2012, maybe the end of 2011. So it was still at the um, part of the process where I had to apply for the partner program. And just here, you can really speak to this more than I can, but I think it was like a thousand views that my channel needed. And I, I applied, you put your like little application in and take a few days to get approved. Um, and yeah, like Andrew, you're totally right. Like the moment when you get your first literally few cents is so exciting. Like I, I just, I started making videos because it was a passion project. It was a creative outlet. And the idea of monetizing it was completely disconnected to, uh, getting into it. And I remember like the next stage was like getting, getting kicked off of like the family phone bill. My parents were like, oh, you're making a hundred dollars a month now. Like you can pay for your own phone bill. And it just grew from that. Um, and so it timed out really well for me. And when I graduated university, I was ready to go full time with it. Um, and so I have a super useful degree in the printing industry, which is fun. And my parents are really stoked about paying for that degree. Um, but it's just incredible how it pivoted my entire life. I think I'm um, such a heartwarming story. And, and you know, it, it also brings up a point, Shishir, you you talked about like all the trade-offs that were being made internally as you open up the YouTube pardon program. Anything you can double click on to be like, what were some of those trade-offs in, you know, what, what would the team have done differently in the launch of that program? I mean, I think we would have done it faster. I mean, I, I think there's, uh, uh, and uh, Jamie Shiva will remember this well, the internal debates on whether to open it up, um, they were intense. And then like every few months there'd be another debate on whether to raise the threshold, close it down. Because it was hard for people to understand what Lauren just said, this, you know, what, what, how does your behavior change when you get your first few cents in your account? Um, I think the, the, the obvious question is as it's, as it's grown, I mean, that YouTube has since raised the threshold for a lot of those things. Would we have done that earlier or not? And I, I don't think so. Um, and I think I think a lot of it is the world's just a different place now than it was then. And, and YouTube's a different place now than it was then. I had an old boss tell me once that every business goes through three phases. Uh, first, you're a joke. Nobody believes in you. Then you're a threat. Everybody's scared of you. And then you're obvious. And everybody assumes whatever you do is going to work. And at that point, all you can do is wrong. And I like to remind people 
I think that, you know, the three of us all got to YouTube at the time when we were clearly joke. Nobody, nobody believed this thing was going to work at all. Um, we were sort of dismissed by the industry, by Google, by so on, and gradually grew, grew to be threat. And everybody had their plans for how to respond to YouTube and, you know, or wanted to partner with us or, or so on. And then it crossed into obvious. And I think that's the stage that, that YouTube feels like today, where people's presumptions of it are that, well, of course, this is going to keep growing. Um, and, and so now, you know, all you can, all you can look at is, is criticize the, the things that they're, that they are perhaps making mistakes on or, or so on. But in that, in that period, you know, it was not at all obvious that, that YouTube was viable or, or people would, uh, abuse the platform in those ways. I, I would have opened up the platform even faster and, uh, and even broader, uh, if I, if I could have. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that. I think like the democratic expansion was really important. Like we moved very fast on that front. But for example, we were we we're sort of late to monetizing cover songs. And I think the theme of this is always like a dollar can legitimize an action on the platform, not only to give them a check, but just to let people know that it's a dependable action they can take that's rewarded by the ecosystem. But the flip side, I think some of the debates that were out there and got pretty bloody internally were are we diluting the pie too much by opening up the tail? And are there integrity issues by opening up the tail? So they were non-trivial and things that every platform has to think about. You know, I'm curious, you know, Jamie, Shashir, like, you know, um, knowing what you know about today's world, you know, do you think it would have been harder to do this today? I mean, I think there's a lot of people trying. Um, yeah, it's, it's also probably worth mentioning the, the, um, the tail we would have this, it, it seemed like every six months we'd have a, a big discussion about, are we diluting, are we diluting the tail? Are we, are we spreading money in places where it's not going to benefit people? <clears throat> and as we're trying to create this new, new ecosystem, and then we would do the math on it. And you know, the, the, the set of people making those, you know, couple bucks a month was if you added them all up, there were tons of people, but it actually represented a very small amount of the, of the money. Um, so I, I, I think those debates are tend to be more philosophical than actually than than realistic, but they, they you know drive, drive certainly a lot of conversation. Yeah, and I mean I think there were, there were definitely some you know times where you know whether it was due to seasonality or maybe we had a sl you know a slower quarter back in the day when you know the expanded partner program would mean that like effective CPMs for creators would drop and that would you know cause a lot of consternation in the creator community. So you know these debates that Shashir is mentioning are you know were super critical to kind of trying to keep you know the platform in balance. And of course you know there's there's other costs associated with as you kind of expand something like a partner program, you know, there you have to kind of, you know, there's responsibility that you have to kind of like have trust and safety protocols in place and you have to review, you know, potentially violative content and things like that. So there's a lot of trade-offs because I know there's a lot of like startup founders in the call and whatnot, but there's a lot of trade-offs that you have to think through as you're looking at, you know, the size of your kind of partner programs or how how many creators you actually might share revenue with. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's worth for all the, I'm, I'm sure there's a bunch of listeners that are building up. It seems like everybody has a creator economy strategy these days. And so it's probably super relevant to talk about how you find balance in that marketplace and managing supply demand. And, and, and so I think it's really important. You know, my view on it generally was, growing the pie eventually grows both sides of it and trying to artificially constrain supply to drive up demand is a fool's errand. 
Um, and so most of those debates, like Jamie was saying, seemed like every every few months, TPMs would drop. People would say, should we constrict supply, let less people into the partner program? Um, but I think we would have just been, we would have been limiting the overall growth of the platform if we did that. Um, because somewhere out there, there was a Lauren thinking about, hey, maybe I should do this instead of my, you know, what my university degree is going to lead me to. And it's going to build an enormous audience and business off of it. Um, so that, that was that was my view of it. One one of the things worth mentioning about that one of my um, my own for, formative stories was there was a launch we did. Um, it was probably 2010 where we changed how related videos worked and related videos as, as context that you know drives most of the traffic on on YouTube or at least at least did then. Um, and it's the videos that show up you know uh, on the desktop uh, on the right of the video and on on the phone below it. Um, but it drives a ton of traffic. And so we made a, uh, you know, an algorithmic change to it that turned out to be a pretty big deal. We spent months testing it and we roll it out and I get, uh, uh, we're all pretty excited. Everybody celebrates. And then, uh, that evening I start getting nasty grams from the content team and each of the partner managers is, you know, writing me what's happening to my creators channels, like all the views are down or, or so on. And, um, and some of them were some of our biggest channels. And so I wrote a note to Christos. Christos ran, I think he still runs Search and Discovery at, at YouTube. And I say, hey, maybe we, is something wrong with the launch? Like, should we roll it back and see what's happening? Because it seems odd that this launch, that I think was like a, it's like an eight or 9% views boost for the whole property, um, which is like an enormous launch at that, at that scale. Um, it's like, how is it possible that our biggest creators are seeing like 50% drops? Um, and Christos got me on the phone. It was like midnight and he let me have it. He's like, what are you talking about? This is crazy. Uh, he used to work on Google search. And he said, if I was working on search, there's no way uh, that we would let anything from the advertiser side affect a launch on the consumer side. And it kind of stopped me in my tracks. Like, is that how we're supposed to operate? We're supposed to be Chinese wall and not really think about how these things interact with each other. Um, and we had our staff meeting the next day, and we ended up having a long discussion about uh, what was different about how Google operated and how YouTube operated. And we came to this conclusion that was not obvious, that actually the Chinese wall made no sense for, for YouTube. Because on Google, you know, if the advertisers disappear, then, you know, people will come search. The, 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 the dynamic is not, is not a marketplace the same way. Um, but on YouTube, if the creators disappear, then there's nothing to watch. And so you can't you can't sort of ignore the creator as you're as you're rolling these things out. And we ended up um, actually writing down our set of 10 principles and so on. And one of the big ones was that we have to find balance in the marketplace. And it totally changed how we ran every launch review, every, every rollout. We started doing a thing we called um, uh, winners and losers. We would, every launch we did, we would look at which channels were benefiting and which ones weren't and why. And we would try to figure out what was happening. Like in this case, it turned out that the channels that were that were getting hit were getting hit for a pretty good reason. They had basically snuck their way into being related videos to completely irrelevant videos, and we were we were serving the user better by doing it. And over time, the channels that were benefiting were better channels for YouTube. And we stuck with the launch and kept it kept it out there. But we had a chance to go look at it and, and explain to people why we thought it was the right choice and and so on. But it's, it you know once you decide you're running a marketplace, you're constantly put into this dynamic of managing. Uh, managing that supply and demand balance.
I, I love this historic look back. I'm curious, how did you guys also think about managing the needs of creators who are already very famous, people maybe who are from traditional Hollywood industry versus a lot of the new up-and-coming creators? Like, how did you think about the needs of the head, the torso, and the long tail? Yeah, so I mean, I think one of the advantages that you know YouTube has, I think to this day, is the strength of the partner management organization that we've built. And you know, we've obviously you know kind of built that and evolved it over time. But you know, when I kind of take a step back and look at you know where we started to where we are today, the the infrastructure that we have to manage you know everyone from major media companies to you know, small creators who are just getting started is incredibly robust. And so, you know, the larger you are, the, you know, obviously the more human support that you get, but we have, you know, we have like incredible resources available and we're building even more for, for the small, for many of the smaller creators. But I do also think that there was a period of time, if you go into like the 2008, 2009 timeframe, where we were really trying to find our way in that conversation. And one of the things that I remember as being really catalyzing was, you know, some folks will remember that there was something called the Original Channels Initiative in 2011. And at that time, um, you know, we were helping try to reset YouTube around the concept of a channel. Uh, and we invested, you know, a significant amount of money in original content both from traditional media players and from the creator community. And, you know, when we looked at the performance, you know, there, it was variable. Of course, some channels did well, some didn't. But when we looked at the channels from the creators, they significantly outperformed over almost every other investment. And I think at that moment, like a real light bulb went off for us that, you know, we needed to kind of super serve the creator ecosystem on YouTube because that was really kind of our differentiation, you know, in the overall video kind of marketplace. And it's where the, the most fan engagement was taking place. That's interesting. I think, uh, sorry, go ahead, Shishu. Yeah, I think I think the original channel was a big moment for it. The other big moment I can think of for this was um, the the uh, the even playing field stay. So we we wrote down these ten principles for how we would run YouTube, and and one of the most interesting one was this uh, principle we called even playing fields. And and the longer version of it was something like um, uh, people are more willing to play games on even playing fields. And uh, what that was sort of hinting at at the time was that when YouTube got started, uh, for a variety of reasons, the way that we treated different partners was was pretty uneven. And the the, the revenue shares were different and the, the the features and capabilities were different. And and we were gradually, as Jamie was mentioning, we we're gradually coming to the conclusion that this is not that helpful um, and that people needed to find a way to authentically engage on, on our platform and how they did elsewhere sometimes mattered and sometimes didn't. Um, and uh, actually, one of the byproducts of that, of what had happened there, was the emergence of uh, this, this group of companies called uh, MCNs, multi-channel networks. And what most of them had discovered, uh, and this is an interesting note for people building creator economies and marketplaces today, most of them had discovered that, hey, you two will treat you differently if you're bigger. And so if we can just get a bunch of creators to act like they're bigger, then we get this completely different treatment. And, and that treatment was different in a bunch of like kind of odd ways. Like the, I think one of the biggest first ones was the was Maker Studios and Machinima. And they went out and they would, they would send an email to people like Lauren and it'd say, hey, it looks like you're a pretty good YouTube creator. Um, you're probably not making as much money as you think you should. Um, why don't you sign over your channel to us, um, which was done through this like 
totally unexpected field in the channel setup, which allowed you to, to be part of a group of other channels. Um, when you sign over channel to us, we get 15 points more in rev share, and we get to do all these special things. We get to avoid content ID. We get to uh, pick custom thumbnails was a very common uh, example of things that we gave to big partners, but not to small partners. And they would just sort of roll up all these small channels um, and represent them as, as, a, as a bigger channel. Um, and we found that, so we went through this process of, of gradually resetting everything. We, re, we reset rev shares for everybody back to be flat for the same for everybody. Uh, we changed it so anybody can do custom thumbnails. We changed the ways that content ID worked. And so it was a pretty hard transition. Um, but it became a key part of our, our ethos was that, uh, even people are more willing to play when there's even playing fields and that required some hard choices from us. And it meant that we couldn't just, you know, overpay or, uh, you know, give, give better consideration to somebody just because they're famous on another medium. Um, and we had to adopt so that everybody played in the same way. I think this is a good point. I, I'd love to double click on that. What happened to MCNs? And then like, there's a number of startups now that have kind of unbundled the MCN world. That's worth chatting about. Um, Jamie, you have had some interesting thoughts on this. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think obviously the, um, I think a couple things happened in, in the MCN space. I think one, you know, some of the business models that they were pursuing kind of in Shashir's as Shashir mentioned in their kind of pursuit to get bigger, you know, proved to be unsustainable in some ways. And I think, you know, we also, you know, modified a lot of our kind of policies um, because we wanted to make sure that uh, the companies and the ecosystems were, were driving value back into the creator ecosystem and not, you know, extracting it. And so the MCN landscape, you know, there's, you know, there's still a lot of MCNs in the marketplace. And, you know, today they're, they're valued partners for us and they're valued partners for creators. We run analyses sometimes and we can, we can actually see uh, increase in channel performance when certain creators join, you know, uh, certain MCNs. Um, so, so that marketplace, you know, still exists, but it, but it did change. But yeah, like I think one of the things that I think is so interesting right now is I think in many ways, kind of the services that the MCNs used to provide, you know, seven years ago or whatnot, are basically being fragmented uh, into a new group of of service provider companies. They tend to focus on, you know, kind of pieces of that overall, um, you know, support layer that MCNs provided. But I think critically, they're almost single focused on, you know, supporting creators and driving value back into the creator ecosystem. Many of them are entrepreneurs that grew up with YouTube. Um, but, you know, to me, you know, what I'm seeing, you know, having been at YouTube for 15 years is we're, we're heading into probably one of the most exciting periods of time in terms of the startup ecosystem that's developing around the creator economy. Uh, and then I think critically, the other thing that I would say is that, you know, creators are now, you know, I'd say if you went back two or three years, when you talked about creators, you know, I would, I would argue, but of course I work at YouTube, that you were actually talking about YouTube creators. Today, creators are really cross-platform. Um, you know, there's clubhouse creators, you know, so the, the marketplace is completely changed. And it actually has created a need for a new breed of service company that supports creators across all, all their different touch points with their fans. Yeah, I just wanted to build on that too. I think like systemically, there's a big shift too. MCNs are rewarded because they basically were um, more or less an ad network. 
they had basically pulled together a bunch of creators, tried to get those resale rights through YouTube, and then get better economics. And today what's really happening, and as we look to the future as well, is more sophisticated and varied business models where like SaaS tools might be the better way to approach it than a holding company effectively. And that shift is really interesting to observe. Yeah, I mean, I think there's uh, been a lot of, at the time we had a lot, a lot of, are we pro-MCN or, or anti-MCN debate? Um, and I, I didn't actually view it as pro or anti. I just wanted the value chain to be clear. Um, I think it's very important that the platforms, and as Jamie mentioned, I think most creators these days are at least at some level cross-platform. Um, I think it's really important that those platforms have have clear, uh, even playing fields. The, rule, the rules are understandable. Um, you may or may not like them. You can choose to play in a different platform, but the uh, you should be able to. You should feel like you're being treated fairly, um, always. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that. I, I mean, I think the role of the MCN then becomes be an agent of the creator, which is, I mean, a totally reasonable. I think many many successful industries end up with uh, with a intermediary that can be very effective. I mean, obviously, music industry, you have labels and, you know, in right. sports, you have agents. And, and so I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, they just need to be the they need to be the, um, the, the they need to be providing a service on behalf of the creator. And I love I mean, I actually uh, Jamie's description of how that industry has evolved sounds sounds awesome. I think that's and uh, I think. I think we can we can get the Lauren's perspective on this as a creator. Like, I feel like when we've started using the word creator, it used to not be creator. I'd love to hear Lauren your point of view. Like, what does it mean to be a creator today, um, and what's top of mind for creators? And like, you've built obviously a very successful um, channel on YouTube. You built a show. You have other lines of business. Where do you go from here? How are you expecting like the platforms to support you going forward? So I think being a creator now, um, like you mentioned, is completely different than it was five, six years ago. And I definitely identified then with just being a YouTuber. Like I was strictly just a YouTuber. And now I think the creator economy has just provided us so many more opportunities. Um, so like venturing into licensing, um, I had, uh, some craft kits done with Mattel that were exclusively in target and, um, some stores in Canada as well. And then same thing with like HBO max and executive producing and hosting, like that's an incredible opportunity that I, you know, wouldn't have had access to had I not proven myself and excelled, um, in the creator economy that originally started on YouTube. Um, and then, so for what's next, I think it's, it's just growing the brand. Um, and I think that just means more than just making videos now. So I've gotten into like angel investing and just learning more about what it is to be an entrepreneur. Um, there's just such an incredible community that we've fostered for, it's been nine years for me and, um, you know, I just want to grow it as much as I can and make a great impact, uh, that's positive and continue to do what I love. That's awesome. Um, there's, you know, I, there's, there's a lot of questions coming in around a topic that I think is top of mind for everyone, which is community development. And I think every company wants to make a strong effort towards building good community, whether it's on the user side, the creator side. And YouTube has done a fantastic job with that, starting from the early days of VidCon. I think without like what lessons, maybe this is a question, great question for you, Jamie, Shiva, Shashir, like what lessons do you take from YouTube's community building efforts 
that are applicable today to every builder, every company builder out there? Yeah, so I mean, I think, well, obviously the most important thing is kind of, you know, respecting the creator community and, and doing as many things as possible as possible to foster it. And, you know, that could be anything from, you know, how you support the individual creators, like, you know, through partner management and cr other creators you introduce them to, summits that you might hold hold for them. And, and then of course, like how you speak, how you speak to them and, you know, through your different marketing and social channels. Cause what you really want to do is kind of, you know, help them rise up. Um, you know, like, I think when you look back on, you know, things that we did that were really formative in building the community, like the early product team, um, you know, there's a the PM named uh, Mary Rose Dunton, who basically led the led the initial product team, like she was super focused on, on fostering the creator community. You know, we, we had something uh, called beacon campaigns, where we elevated creators, this was important message to the advertising community, but it also sent a message to the creator community at large that we believed in them, uh, we wanted to support them, and we wanted them to succeed. Yeah, just adding to the empathy aspect, I think like um, when I was running the creator team effectively, you know, we'd all go down to VidCon, we'd all have to create videos, we'd all have to build an audience internally. Most of those videos were bad, but feeling actually the, the tooling and understanding how this stuff works and what the outcomes looks like is really important. I think we have a tendency often on these platforms just to look at the metric, but there's so much diversity behind the scenes, it's important to, to dig deep and get the anecdotes alongside of the data. I think one of the one of the key choices that, I don't know if we made it that actively, but it sort of happened and we embraced it, was um, how VidCon grew as a parallel, but not owned by YouTube uh, community and brand. Um, and I think that, I mean, there's lots of debate about that and whether, you know, the, the preeminent conference for, uh, for YouTubers uh, was run by the community and not by us, um, although we were a heavy sponsor of it, was lots of, lots of debate on it. I think that ended up being a really big positive. And I'm sure as people build up their communities, that'll be a, a, be a debate. Um, you know, should Clubhouse run their own community or let, let someone else do it? Um, and I think that, I think the, the authenticity of that community naturally grew. And the first one was like, the, the, the main meeting of the first one was like a hundred people in a conference room and in the crown plaza in LA. I mean, it, was, it, it grew, uh, now it's like, I don't know, 50, 60,000 people go every year. Um, so I think the, that letting the community grow past the platform was sort of part of the same spirit of let the pie grow. Um, but it was a tricky decision. Yeah. Um, I feel like in this uh, last 10 minutes that we have left, I'd love to maybe just talk a little bit about where all of this is going. And Jamie, like in your mind, you know, sitting in your shoes, like what is YouTube thinking about for the future? And like, um, what do you want to see emerge? Uh, what are trends that you're excited about? And what are the trends that you'd like to see in the creator economy? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, I think trends that we're seeing, you know, I kind of mentioned already that this kind of new class of, of service provider company, you know, that I'm really excited about. And, you know, obviously A16Z is kind of super active in this space, but, you know, there's companies like Stir or companies like Pietra that are doing, you know, really interesting things. There's, you know, there's what Reed and, you know, Ezra and Jimmy, Mr. Beast are building, you know, with, um, you know, their kind of uh, creative juice, you know, so kind of really excited to see, you know, that layer of service kind of come into the ecosystem and help, 
you know, rise up, you know, help creators rise up. Um, you know, I'm really kind of interested in the stuff that's happening in the, in the social token space. You know, that really feels like, um, you know, it really feels like social tokens are going to be like the operating system for the next 10 years of how creators, you know, interact with their fans. So there's, you know, as I mentioned, there's just, there's so many exciting things happen in this, in the space and the acceleration, um, is, uh, is just incredible to see. And I think creators are really going to benefit from, from all the attention that, um, you know, entrepreneurs and companies like ourselves are, are, are putting into the, into the creator economy. Lauren, what are your thoughts? Like, what do you um, predict the in terms of where the economy or the creator economy and ecosystem will head in the next few years? Um, I, I totally agree. I think what Reed and Night Media is doing um, is is truly incredible. I love following, you know, everything that's going on with Mr. Beast. Um, but I think it's it's going to continue to be an expansion of brands. So like what Mr. Beast did with the Beast Burger was uh, so interesting to see. And I think social tokens, um, I've recently gotten on BitCloud and it's just been so interesting to see how things are shifting. Um and so I think it's just going to be finding different ways to expand and to foster that community to be even stronger cross-platform. Yeah, I think just to build, I just want to build on what Laura just said, because I probably should have mentioned it earlier. But I think the thing that is is the probably the most exciting is to see how over the past 15 years, you know, creators went from, you know, just posting videos to YouTube to today when you say the word creator, you're actually talking about a brand and like a next generation media business, right? And every creator, in addition to their the video content that they create, is expanding out in a variety of different ways. And so, yeah, so Jimmy's got, you know, Beast Burger and all sorts of other initiatives. You know, Laura's got kind of some of her work with HBO Max. And, you know, there's just each creator is kind of looking at their fan base, looking at what they're interested in, and building a true 360 business around themselves. Like, we're really looking at the next generation of media businesses you know, coming out of the out of this creator economy. Yeah, I could add a few things. I mean, my my thought. Jamie mentioned it earlier. Back in 2010, 2011, we made this um, strategic shift, and we decided to change the primary noun of YouTube. And the just not it's not a very easy thing to do. I mean, imagine taking Clubhouse and having it not be about rooms. Um, at the time, uh, YouTube was primarily about videos. The the whole property oriented on how many views your videos had. The game was get your video onto the most viewed page. And if you got on that page and you probably got to stay there. And the idea of channels was kind of secondary. Um, most of the most popular videos on YouTube were from channels that have almost nothing else. I mean, you went and looked at the Charlie Bit My Finger um, uh, channel and the next, the they would they published like three other videos. And there's, it, it was all sort of built off of just build one great hit. And then and then ride that as long as you can, and we decided in in that 2010 2011 period that we wanted to shift to the primary noun of YouTube being channels and the primary metric being subscribers, and and that was a like a massive shift in how how the ecosystem worked and how the property worked, and we changed the way the homepage was laid out and uh, changed the way the subscribe model worked and all all these different things, um, and I think it mostly worked. I mean, these days when when creators talk about how popular they are. They don't talk about the number of views on their most viewed video. They talk about their number of subscribers and the community they're building and, and, and so on. And so I think that was a massive change almost a decade ago now. Um, my, my sense is 
that the I think I think what Lauren and Jamie are saying are very consistent is that we're going to see people make the next obvious jump from that and say what what you're actually building now is deep communities that cross platforms. And I think one of the biggest tensions for those platforms is uh, it's not always so obviously in your interest. I mean, it, Lauren, you described your HBO Max relationship. We used to we used to keep a record of uh, creators, which we called we called it Farm League Pro League, um, and we would have many creators would have this this moment where they got you know bigger than YouTube, and it was it was seen negatively. I mean, it was it was seen as a you know we we kind of didn't serve enough of their needs, and so now HBO has to do it. Um, and so for a long time, we would we would have lots of debates about how to prevent it and how to you know what what could we do to keep that from happening. And I think the the entire world has changed to embrace the idea that no one platform is going to provide everything that your community wants from you, um, and that you're going to move from lots of different platforms and try to hopefully carry your audience with you. Um, I think that's a big shift in the in the industry. And I don't think it's actually one that the the distributors have uh, made very easy. It's a, it's it's quite hard to carry your audience across platforms. Um, and carry your value propositions across platforms. So I, I think that's probably what we'll see happen next. Yeah, just related to that, like there's a tool we rolled out a little bit late. It was called Doppler. And I think uh, basically an analyst came up with this idea. And if you think about the game of creators on YouTube, there was like one, two, three, all the way up to 10. 10 is like Lady Gaga. He had a lot of aspiring folks at one. But what we were trying to look at with this tool was like, what do people do? What's their volume of production? And then more interestingly, at every different segment, do they churn out of these segments? And so, for example, you'd see a lot of folks, once you get to like level five, you're able to monetize effectively with ads. But if you're at level four, there was a high churn rate because the business model just didn't fit it perfectly. Ads depends on that wide distribution. So I think what's really exciting about the future is that if you're a really specialized content provider, subscriptions can work for you. If name and likeness is something that your fans appreciate, you can create merchandise, and that should be easier on all platforms. But that level of sophistication, I don't think we had at the time, and I'm really excited to see that unfold in the future. Andrew, Andrew, Connie, anything you want to add? Yeah, I, I was just going to say, you know, uh, like for for um, two of the companies that I work with in the space, obviously Clubhouse, you know, being one of them. It's, it's uh, you know, and then Substack being kind of another relevant one. I think one of the big things I'm seeing and I'm very interested in is just this whole model of taking taking the creator economy to its sort of natural conclusion where you really feel like you're, you're it really is, you know, like Shashir was saying, is kind of this combination of being a marketplace company and being a, you know, social media company. And all the monetization ends up being focused around people trying to support individual creators and being excited about that. Um, you know, Lauren's point on BitClout, like very, very much so like same, same kind of thought, um, you know, rather than kind of the whole, having the whole thing be advertising supported and then figuring out how to, you know, create a cut for, for creators. Cause I think when you, when you, when you do it that way, when you, when you do it the very transparent way where it's just, okay, we're just gonna, you know, Substacks models, like we're just going to take 10%. Um, it really, uh, makes it clear the, the economic model It makes it so that people, um, really understand um, how they can how they can continue to invest and build a whole career on top of this, and so I'm I'm excited about all of that. And then yeah, Connie. Yeah, I'm, I'm 
I've, I've long been uh, really equally excited about this concept of switching, not just from advertising revenue, but to also transaction-based revenue. And I think part of that really opens up uh, new ways for super fans and hardcore fans to really differentiate from casual fans as well. So it can be a win-win for creators where they can see, oh, this fan or this particular viewer uh, really likes what I'm creating. They're willing to put this kind of tipping or they're willing to sign up for some kind of membership or maybe buy a sweatshirt with my logos on it or so forth. So this idea of using transactions as a way to signal kind of your affinity towards a particular creator is something I'm excited about. And I think when we think about transactions, it's not necessarily always you know, physical merchandise. Although we've really seen in the last year or two, lots of startups starting to think about how can we enable creators to sell physical goods because people who who watch them want to be able to share that as part of their identity. These are folks that they, they really admire and want to be affiliated with by brand. Um, but also how can you digitize kind of a creator's time or a creator's access or a creator's attention? And that can be seen in things like you know, the rise of, of how Cameo has really grown significantly during COVID and how lots of creators are now looking and toying with these ideas of how can I maybe sell like a 15 minute FaceTime call or can I accept digital tips or something like that where I will pay more attention to certain fans. So this idea of shifting, not just um, for ads where you're trying to create videos that get mass market appeal, tons of viewership, but also what does it look like when you can monetize with transactions? And maybe that can even change the type of content you're incented to create. All right. Well, with that, we are at time. Um, you know, I these are some great thoughts and I think we're all going to be following the creator economy very closely. Lauren, we wish you the best. Um, we all love your videos here and we'll be, you know, rooting for your success going forward. Shiva, Shishir, Jamie, thank you so much for all that amazing insight. Uh, I feel like we could almost go for another hour talking about all the trade-offs the team made in the early days to the success. And um, yeah, thank you so much for your time. And for the audience, thank you for spending your lunch hour with us. Um, you know, definitely DM us on Twitter for any other ideas in the future for content, topics, um, questions. And we'll see you next time. Thanks all.